This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Professor Maroghi is now at uh, Santa Barbara State University where he teaches in the Ethics and Philosophy Department. His work uh, began as a pharmacologist. He has a doctorate degree in pharmacology. And then he decided that he doesn't want to worry about the body. He wants to think about the soul. So he began a PhD program in philosophy and wrote a uh, dissertation on the ethics of uh, action uh, under tragic circumstances. I think he had the Iranian situation in mind when he was writing it. Uh, those of us who have been interested in the developments in Iran and have watched the intellectual scene in Iran, I think uh, there is a something of a consensus that Professor Naraghi is a very key element of a very exciting development uh, within a segment of Iranian intellectual community that began their work as uh, Islamic intellectuals and then decided to become simply intellectuals and thinkers and look at Islam from that perspective rather than looking at the world from the perspective of Islam. Uh, there is a great deal of fascinating work that is being done inside Iran. And now, because of uh, Professor Naraghi, and because of Ganji, and because of Surush, who live outside Iran, part of this work is being done outside Iran. But I think this work, collectively, is truly of historic magnitude because I think they are beginning to think about the role of Islam and modernity in ways that is absolutely new in a sense that I think this generation is the first generation of thinkers within Islam that knew very well the philosophical traditions of the West and the exigencies of modernity and they know Islam well. Those who tried to combine the two were either lacking in the Islamic leg of their knowledge or in the Western leg of their knowledge. He is of that rare breed that knows both and is a scholarly uh, and astute and creative in combining the two. So uh, Professor Naraghi uh, kindly accepted our invitation to come back and deliver that slightly revised paper. Thank you. It's a great pleasure and honor to be here, and my special thanks to Professor Milani. Uh, the title of my talk, as you know, is about Ayatollah Khomeini's doctrine of understanding conception of government, his theory of government. Uh, before I start presenting my, my, my paper, I would like to give you an outline of what I'm about to say. Uh, in general, I divided my, my paper in two separate parts. In first part, I explained different versions of the doctrine of guardianship of Islamic jurists, which is Ayatollah Khomeini's understanding of the nature of government and 
then after that I will explain different reactions in Iranian society especially among uh, Muslim community to that theory some Muslim scholars they try to re-understand and try to criticize that theory from different aspects and I'm going to discuss some uh, uh, some of those reactions. So in general, what I'm about to do is first to explain Ayatollah Khomeini's theory of government. So as we will see, he presented two different versions of this theory. The first version was presented before of that theory, so let's call it pre-revolution, that's the first version of the theory presented by me, and after revolution, years after revolution, he presented oh, another... You have a technical problem, oh. sorry, if you take these uh, oh, okay. and put them on our website, and so. uh, if you can take them... Okay, sure. Sure. <laughs> of course. Okay, so I, I think I cannot move it. Okay. We have a lot of comments. Okay. I did. And the second version presented years after revolution, and you might call it post-revolution. That's the first version of the theory. It was presented in Najaf when Ayatollah Khomeini was in Iraq. That's the first version. And the second version presented when he was the supreme leader of the Islamic Republic of Iran. So I will explain these two different versions, and later on I will talk about different reactions to the theory. And in general, in the Islamic community in Iran, we can classify three different reactions to the theory. So reactions to the theory, at least, as I said, within the framework of Islamic community in Iran, you can distinguish three different reactions. The first one can be called traditionalist reaction. The second one you, call, you can call it modernist reaction. And finally, you can call the last one pragmatic reaction. These are three different types of reaction to the theory, at least within the uh, framework of Islamic community. So I would like to start with the first one, how he understood the, the nature of government at the very beginning, before revolution, and how this understanding transformed uh, after revolution. So, all, we all know that after the 1979 re Islamic Revolution in Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran was founded. 
Iran's new form of government was mainly based on the doctrine of guardianship of Islamic jurists. The doctrine was designed to guarantee the Islamic nature of the government through Islamic jurist supervision. The doctrine as understood by Ayatollah Khomeini does not have a very long and solid root in the history of Shi'i jurisprudence. The first Shi'i jurist who introduced the notion of velayat faqih or guardianship of the Islamic jurist as an independent chapter in Shi'i jurisprudence and emphasized the political role of Islamic jurist was Mullah Ahmad Naraqi in 18th century. His line of thought on vilayat faqih was not followed by the following generations of Shi'i jurists until about 200 years later. It was Ayatollah Khomeini who picked up who picked up Naraqi's line of thought and developed his idea in more details and finally put it into practice. Ayatollah Khomeini by far is the most important Shi'i authority who has advo advocated and implemented the doctrine of guardianship of the Islamic jurist. However, his understanding, as I mentioned, his understanding of the doctrine was changed and transformed during the course of time. In fact, he presented, as I mentioned here, two versions of the doctrine. So what's the difference between first version and the second one? The first version was presented by him when he, because of some, some of his political activities, was expelled from Iran to Iraq by Shah's regime. In Najaf, Ayatollah Khomeini delivered regular lectures on the nature of Islamic government. And during the course of those lectures, he defended the first version. Later on, those le lectures uh, were gathered and published by some of his students and followers under the title of vilayat faqih or guardianship of the Islamic jurist. The first version is a theory of government confined by Islamic law, and that's the crucial point. According to this version, Islamic jurisprudence is complete, and that's the first important characteristic of the first version. So according to the first version, what we call Sharia is complete. That's the first important characteristic. <clears throat> and it means the Sharia can provide adequate resolution to any private and public matter or problem. Sharia is a complete system of laws and rules that covers all aspects of human life and governs humans' personal and social life from birth to death. According to this version, Islamic government simply means to govern the society in accordance govern society in accordance with the verdicts of Islamic jurisprudence. Ayatollah Khomeini wrote, quote, Islamic Sharia contains all the laws and rules necessary 
to build the whole social system. This legal system covers all human beings' need, from how to treat your neighbors, offsprings, tribe, people, fellow citizens, private life, marital life, to rules that govern to, to, to rules that govern peace and war and international relationships, from criminal laws to the commercial laws and laws for industry and agriculture. It has laws for one's obligations before marital sex and at the moment of conception. It has commands on how to have sex and even what to eat before sex or before conceiving a child. It explains the parental duties toward infants and how, to how the child must be raised and how men and women ought to treat each other and their children. It has rules and laws for all these stages in order to raise a virtuous, perfect human being, a human being who is the embodiment of law and automatically and voluntarily follows the laws. It is obvious that Islam pays considerable attention to the government and the political and economical relations in the society in order to provide the best condition for training purified and virtuous individuals. The Holy Quran and Sunnah contain all commands and orders necessary for human beings' perfection and happiness. According to Rivayat, or words of imams, imam swears that beyond any doubt, Quran and Sunnah contain all that people need. End of the quote. So you can see the conception of fiqh is it has everything you need. The Islamic jurisprudence is complete. Nothing beyond that is needed. So that's the first characteristic. And as you can see, the first characteristic is to implement the law of Sharia, it is necessary to have control over the government. So the second characteristic is this. The main task of government is to implement the law of Sharia. And it is a very important point, according to this version, that's the main purpose of having government. And finally, the third important characteristic, who is going to do it? There is only one person who, uh, according to the, the according to Ayatollah Khomeini, there is only one person who can do it. The ruler must be an expert in Islamic law, and it means the, the ruler has to be an Islamic jurist. So the ruler must be an expert in Islamic law, and it means the ruler must be an Islamic jurist. These are three important characteristics of the first version. This is the heart of Khomeini's theory, Ayatollah Khomeini's theory of government when he, uh, after, before revolution, when he was not in power. He wrote, quote, 
Islamic government is governance in accordance with law. Therefore, the ruler is required to be knowledgeable of the laws. According to Rivayat, not only the ruler, but also all others, no matter what profession or social responsibility or status they might have, they all are required to know the Islamic laws. But of course, the ruler must be the most knowledgeable of all. Justice and the knowledge of the law are essential conditions for being a ruler. Other things are not relevant and necessary. It's important. It's a quote from uh, his work, Velayat uh, al Other things are not relevant and necessary. It is clear that the main goal of the first version is to reverse the process of secularization. It violates the super separation of church and state and in intends to regulate the public sphere in accordance with the law of Sharia. According to this version, the government is obliged to follow the laws of Sharia regardless of the consequences. When a conflict occurs between public reason and a law of Sharia, the law of Sharia takes priority. In other words, the main purpose of the first version is to remystify the public sphere, and of course it requires for the Islamic jurist to be in power. This is more or less what Ayatollah Khomeini had in mind when he was in Najaf. But he changed his mind. The second version was presented years after Ayatollah Khomeini officially became in charge of Iranian government and took responsibility as the supreme leader of the Islamic Republic of Iran. After several years experiencing the real difficulties of actually ruling a country, Ayatollah Khomeini clearly recognized that the first version of the doctrine was naive and needed to be fundamentally revised. He openly declared that, quote, Ishtihad, that is, the exercise of independent or original analysis of legal issues, as currently understood and practiced in the traditional Islamic seminaries, is not adequate, end of the quote. He wrote, quote, government determines how we should actually deal with poly polytheism, shirk, blasphemy, kufr, and internal and foreign difficulties. But the kind of knowledge and debates that is common among the students of seminaries is too theoretical. And by that he means it's abstract and detached from reality. And as a result, not only it is incapable of resolving those real issues, but also it itself causes some irresolvable problems that force us to at least apparently violate the Constitution. End of the quote. At this point, Ayatollah Khomeini's theory of government made a drastic turn. According to the first version, as you can see, <clears throat> government was restricted by the laws of Sharia. But now, he claims that the government is among the first principle, ahkam of Islamic Sharia, and its requirements take priority to all other 
what we call secondary principles, ahkam of sharia, including pray, fasting, and hajj. Of course, they are among ahkam avaliyye, but uh, he explicitly, when he was asked about you know, the, the, the extension of his claim, he said it goes far beyond ahkam or secondary principles. <coughs> now, he considers the government as a subdivision of the Prophet Muhammad's absolute and unquestionable right to rule and guardianship. When the absolute necessity of having an Islamic government has been established, it is natural to assume that the requirements of such government must take absolute priority. The interests of the governmental system, or maslahat nizam take priority. And if those interests require the government to make some decisions or take some actions that violate other principles of Islamic law, then the government is allowed to do so. Therefore, the second version is to some extent a theory of the Islamic law confined by the government. The first one was the government which was confined by Islamic law, but the second version changed the order. So it is a the Islamic law in this case is confined by the government. In this context, Ayatollah Khomeini reached the conclusion that Islamic government needed a new institution to determine the real interests of the governmental system and provide the government with the permission to act in accordance with those interests when doing so seems contrary to some verdicts of Islamic Sharia. This institution was called the Nation's Ex Expediency Discernment Council, or Majma'i Tashkhis Maslahat. When he, when he, as the supreme leader, commanded the government to establish such an institution, Khomeini wrote, quote, you gentlemen must notice that the interest of the governmental system is a very important matter and any negligence in this regard may lead to a failure of our precious Islam. Today, the Islamic world considers Islamic Republic of Iran as a great exam exemplar, exemplar and look up to us to find the resolution of their problems. This interest of people and the governmental system is very important and we should not resist against it. And by that, he means we should take it seriously and comply with it. If we ignore it, then it may eventually weaken the kind of Islam that cares for the poor. And as a result, the kind of American Islam, which is the, favor, which is the favorite of arrogant and cruel people by using the support of billions of dollars and assisti assistance of their internal and foreign allies, would win the battle. So uh, we have to do everything we can in order to support the government because this is the great example for Islamic world. Everyone in, in Islamic countries, they look up to us and so we have to present a very good and successful example uh, to win the battle, as he put it. So the second version has two important characteristics. First. And it is important uh, 
according to this version, it subordinates all the legal and political powers and authorities to one individual person who must be an Islamic jurist. Uh, is called the supreme leader or valiy faqih. So all the legal and political power or authorities must be given to one person. And that person is the Islamic jurist. That is who is Islamic jurist. And it is a very important and crucial step to take because from now on, this person has all the power to, to make new laws. And when he make, when he create a new law, that would be the law of Sharia, because he has all the power. And secondly, it subordinates the laws of Sharia to the interests of the governmental system, which can be detect, detected independently by human reason. So here, he introduced a new notion. It, it was new to, especially to Shi'i jurisprudence the concept of maslahat, or uh, I, I cannot say national interest. What he had in mind was close to national interest, but you might say the interest of the governmental system. So uh, the interest of governmental system Plays, play a very crucial role. And I explain what that role is. So, and it, the important thing is this. The interest of government is, is not something divine or something religious and can be detected by pure reason. You must calculate, you know, use your reason to see what might be the interest of the government. And, if, and you need to determine that interest by using your reason. And reason is a secular concept. These two characteristics clearly indicate that a troubling paradox lies at the heart of the second version. The first characteristic gives the Islamic jurist as such a privileged right to government, and therefore it is clear violation of the principle of separation of church and state, and also a violation of the people's right to choose. However, the main difference between the first and the second versions lies in the second characteristics here. According to the first version, the primary principles of Sharia have absolute priority to all other considerations. But according to the second version, the principle of the governmental interest, maslahat-e-nizam, 
is not only considered as a legitimate ground for making new laws and policies, but also it takes absolute priority when a conflict occurs between that principle and other traditionally well-known pri primary principles of Sharia. As far as the process of secularization is concerned, it is a very important forward step in the context of Shi'i jurisprudence. Because in the final analysis, what determines the social and political policies is not some mysterious religious verdicts that must be obeyed no matter what the consequences might be. Rationally calcula calculable interests determine the content of laws and social and political policies. For example, in June 2000, Islamic Consultative Assembly, Majlis Shurai Milli, approved of an amendment to the item 1130 of the civil law, according to which women acquired the right to divorce when under some specific specified situations, the burden of marital life was unbearable to them. For example, when their husbands were seriously addicted or their husbands abandoned them for more than six months. According to the law, they wanted to give the woman the right to divorce under those difficult situations. The Council of Guardianship, the Council of Guardians or Shorai um, Nagahban rejected the amendments as a violation of the law of Sharia. And they, they were right. According to the uh, traditional Sharia, women, they have no right to divorce. And it, it doesn't matter what condition the husband has. So the, the, the woman has no right to divorce. So uh, the Council of Guardians, they rejected the amendment as a violation of the law of Sharia. However, Two years later, the expediency uh, or the expediency discernment council, although explicitly agreed with the council of guardians that the amendments was a violation of Sharia, approved it under the name of the governmental interest, under the name of maslaha. They explicitly says, look, we know you're right. This law is a violation of Sharia, but uh, when you look at the situation, you will see it's required by maslaha or governmental maslaha or national interest or whatever uh, uh, to, to pass the law. So these are two different understanding of the nature of government. And as you can see, uh, he had to change his view uh, to the second one. And I want to say, and I explain it uh, later on, uh, this is a very important step. To many people, he gave up, you know, uh, the, the, the Islam in favor of government. But I think what he did was to introduce a new concept in Shi'i jurisprudence, the concept of maslaha. And that was the very important step towards secularism, as I will explain later on. Okay. But this theory, uh, being criticized by Islamic community in Iran. Today, 
as you all know, the Islamic Republic of Iran is officially based on the second version of the doctrine. That's, that's the, uh, the foundation, theoretical foundation of Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, so according to this version, uh, all the legal and political powers and authorities are subordinated to the supreme leader and the laws of Sharia are also subordinated to the interests of the governmental system. Of course, the second version have raised some critical reactions among, among Iranian Islamic scholars, and uh, this is what uh, I like to uh, explain a little bit. Most traditional Islamic jurists welcome the first characteristic of the second version. Let me say it here. We have here two different reactions among traditionalists. The first one, uh, they rejected the second version in favor of the first one. So, they rejected the post version in favor of the pre-revolution version. And the second version, some of them, as I will explain, they rejected the second version in favor of democracy. Most traditional Islamic jurists welcomed the first characteristic of the second version. They, they believed, look, if we, we are going to have an Islamic government, the Islamic jurists must be in charge. They agreed with that. They had no problem with that principle. They believed that all activities in Muslim community must be in accordance with the law of Sharia, and it is the Islamic jurist's responsibility to supervise all aspects of the society, including the government, to make sure that all the laws of Sharia have been effectively implemented. However, they criticized the second characteristic of the second version, mostly in favor of the first version. That is, they believe that the laws of Sharia must be obeyed, no matter what the consequences might be. The duty of the Islamic government is nothing but to implement the laws of Sharia, regardless of how it might affect the so-called interests of governmental system. On the other hand, most Iranian Islamic intellectuals welcome the second characteristic of the second version, i.e., they believe that at least in the public sphere, the public interest must take priority to what is assumed to be the law of Sharia. But they are critical of the first characteristics, mo mostly in favor of a democratic form of government in which the government is a representative of the citizens and the separation of church and state is highly respected. So here we have modernists. They also, like the second group of traditionalists, 
they rejected the whole doctrine, old and new version, in favor of democracy. And I will explain what the difference is between these two approaches. <clears throat> and of course, there's a third category, pragmatists. Uh, they have some uh, uh, political agenda, as I will explain. All the reactions in the, con the context of Islamic discourse can be classified in these three major groups. Let's talk about the first one, the Islamic traditionalist reaction. Among traditional Islamic jurists, at least two major reactions to the doctrine can be identified. First, some Islamic traditional scholars, such as Ayatollah Lutfallah Safiye Gulpaigani, who was once a member of the Guardian Council and resigned himself from that position as a result of his disagreement with Ayatollah Khomeini, strongly opposed to the second characteristics of the second version of the doctrine. As I said, they believe this version has a problem because of the second one. The main task of government is nothing but to implement the law of Sharia. But what's, what's the use of the government if the interest of governmental system takes priority? So he rejected the first one and he opposed Ayatollah Khomeini. And because of that, he resigned himself of that position in uh, Guardian Council. You know, the, the, the task of Guardian Council was nothing but to make sure the laws passed in, for example, um, the, the, the uh, majlis is, uh, uh, is not a violation of Sharia. So he resigned himself. These Islamic scholars believe that the supreme leader, or wali faqih must remain confined in the realm of Sharia, and under no circumstances he should overlook or discredit the rules of Sharia. To them, the main purpose of Islamic government is nothing but to implement the rules of Sharia. And if the Islamic government itself violates the rule of Sharia, then what would be the difference between Islamic and secular governments? The main purpose is to implement the rules of Sharia, to create Islamic community. But if the government itself is allowed to violate the rules of Sharia, then what's the point of it? That was the critic. The first reaction. So Ayatollah Safi is one of the Ayatollah Safi. If you you may know, he 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 is Ayatollah Gulpaigani's son-in-law, right? So he's a very uh, well-known uh, traditional scholar in Rome. The second reaction among traditional Islamic scholars were, was more radical and mostly in favor of a kind of democratic government. One of the best representatives of this view is Ayatollah Mehdi Ha'iri, passed away a few years ago. Ayatollah Ha'iri. <coughs> 
He was one of the most prestigious traditional Islamic scholars who challenged the doctrine of the guardianship of the Islamic jurists as presented by Ayatollah Khomeini. Ayatollah Hayri tried to defend a version of representative form of government in terms of Sharia, in terms of Shi'i traditional jurisprudence. His goal was to, ex was to explain the notion of political legitimacy on the basis of the traditionally well-known concept of ownership or malikiyat, and to justify the notion of election on the basis of the traditionally well-known concept of authorized representative or vekalat. According to Ayatollah Hayri, human beings share the ownership of the nature prior to the existence of any contract or legal system. If a group of people inhabit in a place prior to any other groups, then every individual in that group would have a specific natural right to that place. In other words, that place would become the shared or common possession of all those citizens or inhabitants. In other words, that place, okay, he distinguished between two types of ownership. The first one, personal ownership of a private property. For example, when you own a car, it is your own car and you are the only person who owns that property. <coughs> it happens uh, when a property exclusively be belongs to uh, an individual. The second type of ownership he distinguished is called, it's a kind of personal ownership of a common property. It happens when it's a specific property belongs to a group of people, i.e. they all share the ownership of that common property. Ayatollah Hayri denies the notion of collective ownership in which a property belongs to an abstract entity called group or society above and beyond its members or citizens. From Ayatollah Hayri's perspective, such entity has no ontological existence beyond and above its members. Therefore, for him, ownership is always personal. That is, a thing can be owned only by people and not by an abstract entity such as group or society. The kind of ownership the kind of ownership that is the foundation of government for Ayatollah Hayri is the personal ownership of a common property. Here, the common property is what he calls city or madine. Madine is the common property shared by all citizens. So he says, look, we have this country. This is a common property of everybody. And every individual has a right to that property. That property belongs to every individual people in that community, in that society. Madine requires a system of security to protect itself against all sorts of internal and external threats. The function of government, and you can see the difference, the function of government, according to Ayatollah Khomeini or Ayatollah Safi, was nothing but to implement the rules of Sharia. But now from the perspective of Hayri, the function of government is something different. He believes the function of government is to provide the city with that security and protection. <clears throat> 
The owners of the city have a natural right to appoint a person or a group of people as their own authorized representative to secure the well-being and peaceful coexistence of all citizens in the city. If the citizens cannot reach a consensus on a specific person or group as their representatives, then the only fair solution is to, for the minority to surround, sur surround to the majority's vote. That's the only fair game. If you can reach a, you know, agreement, that's fine. Otherwise, that's the solution. Therefore, a government formed based a government formed based on the notion of personal ownership of the common property by all the citizens is a form of representative government. Ayatollah Hayri, following the Islamic jurist tradition, claims that the task of Islamic jurists as such is to identify the general rules and verdicts of Sharia. However, the, the jurist as such has no privileged knowledge or expertise to identify the st specific instances of those general rules or to apply those rules or verdicts to specific cases. And since politics is a branch of practical wisdom and requires constant identification of specific cases and wise application and instantiation of general rules, therefore Islamic jurists as such have no privileged right to the government. So, as you can see, he rejected the first one, which was and still is a crucial element in the doctrine of guardianship of the Islamic jurist. The Islamic jurist is the one and only person who has right to government. Okay, this is more or less what you can see among traditionalists. Of course, Hayri, uh, uh, this is the dominant position among traditionalists. They, they, crit they, they, they criticize Ayatollah Khomeini for the second version, and they preferred the first one to the second one. Ayatollah Hayri was an exception to that rule, and he tried to defend a, a, a kind of democracy in the framework of Shi'i Shi jurisprudence. And more or less, this is how he did it. Now let's, let's talk about the second reaction, second type of reaction to Ayatollah Khomeini's theory of government. Modernist reaction is a position has been taken by Iranian Islamic intellectuals, or in Iran we call them Roshan Fikrani Dini, Islamic or religious intellectuals. Islamic intellectual, intellectuals are Muslim scholars who present a new understanding of Islam that is friendlier to the requirements of mod modernity. More specifically, they are pro-democracy and explicitly question the legitimacy of any interpretation of Islamic authentic texts that is incompatible with the content of human rights as understood in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. In post-revolutionary Iran, Abdul Karim Surush has been the most influential Iranian Islamic intellectual, and his ideas have had a great impact on Iranians' understanding of religion and politics. He presented the idea of democratic government 
in an Islamic society as an alternative to Ayatollah Khomeini's doctrine of vilayat faqih or guardianship of the Islamic jurist. I remember vividly, I remember when his article on you know, democracy was published in Iran, it was a, a scary time. Many people, they explicitly interpret his works as you know, a clear opposition to Ayatollah Khomeini at, and at the time he was alive. According to many Islamic, Islamists, including Ayatollah Khomeini, Islam as a religion has specific and detailed political theory on how the social and political powers ought to be dis distributed in the society and how the government must manage public affairs. Surush opposes political Islam in that sense. He explicitly argues for the following claims. First, Islam as a religion does not require any specific political theory, and even though it is not necessarily compatible with all sorts of political order or government, it can be consistent with many different forms of political order and governmental system. Second claim, Islamic jurists as such have no privileged right to government whatsoever. Third claim, the laws of Sharia cannot be implemented in the society unless at least the two following conditions are satisfied. The first condition, those laws have, they, they have the, the first condition is they must have the approval of the majority of citizens, which must be established through some democratic process such as winning the majority of public votes. And second condition, those laws, the law of Sharia, should not violate the content of human rights as understood in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So you can have, you can implement the law of Sharia in society under two conditions. First, the majority must vote for that verdict, for that law. And secondly, the content of law must not violate the content of human rights as understood in uh, the, the Declaration of Human Rights. And finally, he argued for the claim that democracy is the best available form of government for all, including Muslim com countries, Muslim communities, at least till now. Following Surush's general approach, Mohsen Kadivar, an Iranian Islamic scholar and political act activist, has tried to develop the same idea in terms of the language of Islamic jurisprudence. He has extensively argued for the two following claims. The first one, he tried to show that the doctrine of guardianship of Islamic jurists has no religious credibility and no reliable religious source supports the doctrine. According to this view, a jurist has guardianship only in those cases where from a social perspective something must be done but no individual is available to take responsibility, such as the guardianship of, for example, orphans. Most jurists have accepted this idea, but not all. According to Kadivar, the extension of vilayat faqih into public domain is not recognized by most jurists. Most of them, they believe, uh, we have some such thing as vilayat faqih, but the domain uh, uh, of his authority is very limited and you cannot extend uh, uh, 
ولی فقیز power beyond certain limitation and to most, to most Shi'i jurists, including Kadivar himself, there is no sufficient basis in the Islamic law to support the, uh, the claim that, that you can extend the, the authority of Islamic jurists beyond those very limited cases. The second claim Kadivar tried to argue for is this. Democracy and the doctrine of guardianship of the Islamic jurists in all its versions are not compatible and by all means are, are, not, are, are not compatible and by all means democracy is preferable to the idea of guardianship of Islamic jurists. He defended explicitly, he argued, in favor of democracy. However, it is noteworthy that Kadivar and Ayatollah Hayri's approaches to the idea of democracy are fundamentally different. And this is the place you can see the difference between these two approaches because as you can see on the surface, they reach to the same conclusion because Hayri also argues in favor of democracy and he wants to defend this idea and same as Surush and Kadivar, for example, here. They both also want to defend democracy, but the approach to democracy uh, was not the same. And here's the difference. Hairi <clears throat> tries to justify the idea of democracy on the basis of traditional concepts of the Islamic jurisprudence. In other words, he argues for democracy from within the framework of Shi'i jurisprudence. It seems, at least on the surface, this is how he had in mind. He said, look, a theory of government can be accepted if and only if you can find some evidence in, in, in Sharia for the theory. Otherwise, that theory cannot be acceptable. And he claims we are fortunate enough because in Islamic jurisprudence, we have enough you know, ground to establish, to, to support democracy. But if you couldn't find, if you could not find any ground in Islamic jurists for democracy, then democracy must be rejected. You, can, you must reject democracy. But here, it seems, uh, the situation it seems to be different. They believe independent of religion. We have rational reasons to believe in democracy and its efficiency, and therefore, we don't need the support of you know, traditional texts we have independent reason, and independent reason says, look, if you want to manage the society in an effective way, that's how you should do it. And there is one thing, of course, one concern. They try to explain there is no conflict between democracy and the holy text, for example, or on. They can be consistent. They can be compatible. That's all. There is no contradiction between democracy and the requirements of the text, of the, of the tradition. So you can see the difference. This one, Ha'eri, wants to justify democracy in terms of you know, religion, but they believe we have independent reason to believe in democracy, and at most what is required as a religious person, you need to make sure there is no contradiction, there is no conflict, there is no inconsistency. So, 
Hoyri argues for democracy from within the framework of Shi'i jurisprudence. He seems to believe that democracy is not religiously justified unless one can provide some, some affirmative evidence for the idea from religious sources. However, Kadivars and also Surush, Surush's justification for democracy comes from independent rational evaluation of the idea. For example, to Kadivar, deciding on the form of the government is a rational matter and requires independent rational investigations. Therefore, for him to justify democracy from a religious perspective, to justify democracy from a religious perspective, it is enough to show that the alternative theories, religiously speaking, have no privilege and the idea of democracy does not violate any of the principles of Islamic faith. That's all you need to do. So this is more or less what you can see uh, among modernists. So they have independent foundation for democracy and they are, they all uh, are pro-human rights and they believe any interpretation of religion that violates the content of human rights must be rejected, religiously speaking must be rejected because it questions the legitimacy of the religion. So they believe there are two, uh, there are different requirements uh, for understanding uh, religion. One of them is human rights. So they emphasize on the concept of human rights. But how about the last one, the pragmatic, uh, reaction to Ayatollah Khomeini's doctrine of guardianship. Some Iranian political scholars and strategists believe that the doctrine of guardianship of Islamic Jews must be dealt with in the context of real politics. The legal political system for these political strategists is a function of more fundamental variables. If those variables change, the legal political system would change accordingly. The main goal is to confine the power of Valiye Faqih, or the supreme leader, as much as possible, and transform that political position to a symbolic figure in the government. However, the most effective way to confine the power of the supreme leader or Valiye Faqih is to mobilize people and organize them in different social movements. Only power can confine power. Probably the best representative of this view is Iranian political scholar and strategist Said Hajjarian, who played a very important role in Iran's reform movement that led to the presidency of Mohammad Khatami in May 1997. And probably most of you know that a few years later, Hajjarian um, was paralyzed as a result of an unsuccessful assassination. They tried to kill him, but uh, they couldn't. But he is paralyzed right now because of what he said. Okay. Theoretically, Hajjarian advocates democracy and respects secularization as the separation of church and the state. However, he believes that, in reality, the balance of power within Iranian government is not in favor of democracy. Therefore, considering the reality of politi political situation in Iran, the best strategy is to defend a version of constitutionalism. Uh, I have to say, the post 
revolution version of Ayatollah Khomeini's doctrine of guardianship uh, within the framework of Iranian government been interpreted in two different ways. So again, we have two versions here. One version, you might call it elective conditional version of velayat faqih and the second version, you might call it appointive, absolute, or non-conditional velayat faqih There are two different understandings. It's a kind of constitutionalism, as I will explain. And Hajarian wants to say, within the Iranian government, there is a challenge, there is a conflict between these two versions. And what we can do we can support people who advocate this version within the government uh, and try to rule out this possibility. Actually, right now, this is the dominant view in Iranian government. But Hajarian wants to say there are people in government who advocate this, this version of the second uh, post-revolutionary version. So we need to mobilize people uh, in order to push this version and uh, uh, make it the case. The first interpretation, the first one, elective conditional velayat faqih or velayat intisabi mashrut. According to this version, all the public officials, including the supreme leader, must be elected through general elections. And his political power, the supreme, le supreme leader's political power, must be restricted to the functions and duties explicitly listed in Iran's constitution. So in Iran's constitution, there are probably 10 or 11 items specifically named the task of the supreme leader. These people says, first of all, the supreme leader must be elected by people. That's first condition. And actually, it is one of the items in the Iranian constitution. The supreme leader must directly be elected by people. And secondly, the task, the duties of responsibilities of the supreme leader is confined to those restricted uh, items named in Iranian, I Iran's constitution. Nothing beyond that. The second interpretation is called velayat intisabi mutlaqi, appointive, absolute velayat uh, faqih. According to this interpretation, the legitimacy of all decisions and policies in public spheres depend on, depends on the approval and authorization of the supreme leader. More importantly, citizens have no say in the appointment or dismissal of the supreme leader and no authority to oversee his verdicts and decisions as valley The opinion of the supreme leader uh, is the measure of proper decisions regarding public domain. The most important religious duty of the people toward the supreme leader is to accept his verdicts, obey his edicts, and help him succeed. People have no right to reject his authority. The legitimacy of his authority is not based on election. 
is appointed by God and his power and authority are absolute and uncheckable. The domain of his authority extends far beyond the Constitution. He can do whatever he uh, see, uh, uh, he, he can do whatever he thinks it's required. So there is no limitation to uh, the, the list of his responsibilities. Within the framework of Iranian government, there has been a very intense competition between these two interpretations of the second post-revolution version of the doctrine. However, it appears that after Ayatollah Khomeini, this one has dominated. Hajjarian's constitutionalism starts from the first interpretation, from this one. Considering the reality of politics in Iran, in his view, it is more effective to advocate and promote the first interpretation against the second one. According to Iran's constitution, the supreme leader is elected by the assembly of experts, which is also in charge of overseeing the supreme leader and has the power to dismiss and replace him at any time. However, in reality, <coughs> the assembly of exper experts has never shown any sign of supervising the supreme leader. More importantly, it is hardly expected that they ever can exercise their legal right to oversee the supreme leader. Because, according to the law, even though people elect the members of the assembly, the, the, suit, the, the credibility of those members before election must be approved by the Guardian Council. On the other hand, the members of the Guardian Council are, are appointed directly by the Supreme Leader. In other words, there seems to be a vicious circle in electing the members of the Assembly of Experts. They are supposed to appoint, oversee, and dismiss a person who has the right to appoint or dismiss them. In particular, if for any reason the Supreme Leader is displeased by the performance of any member of the Assembly, he has the legal power to dismiss that person and prevent him from being re-elected. This possibility does not allow that members of the Assembly of Experts to fulfill their duty of overseeing the Supreme Leader properly. Okay. Now, Hajarian claims that it is an urgent political task to break this vicious circle in favor of people's right to control over all the public officials, including the Supreme Leader. This is an effective first step to confine the power of the Supreme Leader. However, this task cannot be fulfilled unless political and social activists can mobilize the social powers in favor of this agenda. By relying on the social power, the people might be able to con convince uh, the government to change its behavior in favor of people's right. He summarizes his strategy as follows. Pressure from bottom, negotiation from top. As far as the second, um, this version being defended by Ayatollah, I'm almost done, yeah. This version is defended by Ayatollah Montazeri and uh, 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 another, uh, uh, 
very famous who died recently. Uh, I have his name here somewhere. No, 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 no. Uh, I have his name. Uh, sorry, I forgot. Uh, uh, no, he recently died. He, he is a very, you know, great Islamic scholar. No, 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 no. Okay, where, where are my notes? Okay, Salehi Najafavadi. Yeah, Salehi, Ayatollah Salehi. Salehi, he defended this version as well. And the second version, especially, was defended by Ayatollah Misbahi Yazdi, the second version. So, as far as the second version of the doctrine is concerned, Hajarian approves of the, uh, this one. Hajarian says it's, it's a good point. We, we have to advocate this point. There is a secular element in Shi'i's jurisprudence, and we should cherish that, that, that step. But the problem is here. And uh, the power of the supreme leader must be confined. So he believes that the politically speaking, it is a positive move to subordinate the laws of Sharia to some rationally, rationally cal calculable considerations such as the requirements of maslahat or public interest. He explicitly claims that within the framework of Shi'i jurisprudence, uh, the second characteristic of the doctrine uh, is an important step towards forming a modern state. Valiyafaqi has the religious authority to change or modify the Islamic legal system or Sharia in accordance with the public interest. And since his political and legal legitimacy, according to the first interpretation of the doctrine, depends on citizen approval, the first one, he represents national sovereignty. In other words, Valiyafaqi, as a representative of national sovereignty, has absolute authority to do whatever is, whatever is necessary to fulfill the national or public interest. More precisely, if national or public interest require the government to go beyond Islamic laws, he, has, he as a representative of national sovereignty, has the authority to le legitimize that so-called transgression. So, Ayatollah Khomeini presented the doctrine of guardian of the Islamic jurist as a reaction to the process of secularization. That was the main goal of the Islamic revolution. His major goal as an Islamic jurist was to subordinate the public sphere to the Islamic laws. When he himself was placed on top of the bureaucratic hierarchy of Iran's government, and as the supreme leader, had to deal with constantly changing issues of social and political life, he was forced to change his political view drastically. Many traditional Shi'i Islamic jurists have considered his new political view, that is, the second version of the doctrine of guardianship of Islamic jurists, as shocking and revolutionary. Ironically, within the framework of Shi'i jurisprudence, Ayatollah Khomeini, Khomeini's second version of the doctrine of guardianship, this one, has been the boldest step towards secular, secularization, secularism, and it has effectively facilitated the process of secularization 
in Iranian society. And that's the irony of this theory. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, okay. Of course. Oh, no, 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 that's all right. Okay. Yes, please. So, in your traditional view, don't you think that we need another branch for totally reject this theory, like the. Here? I totally reject both of them, actually. And they're totally against the Ayatollahs getting into government, like Hoi and his disciple Zistani, who are totally against being. I mean, that's it, traditionalists that reject both theories. It depends how you interpret their views. Because according to the first one, you're, you're right. Some people, they believe, as I said, the, 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 the domain, the, the realm of Valier Fari's authority is confined to some very specific cases. There are public, you know, at first, nobody is responsible for them, and somebody must take care of them. And Valier Fari can do that. To that extent, Ayatollah Khoi, for example, he believes in Valier Fari. But they do not believe that Valier Fari uh, necessarily must be uh, the ruler of the uh, political sphere. Yes, you're absolutely right. Yes. Yes, please. Um, so, ab basically, after Ayatollah Khomeini died, there are two interpretations of his second version. That's Is right. there any evidence that shows which one was what he was thinking when he designed this new model? Was he going towards more, more towards the it is very difficult to answer this question. There are some evidence that point this version, and there are some evidence that points to this version. Uh, to be honest, I believe this version is not a consistent version to take. And people like Ms. Yazdi, who defend this version, their position seems to be more consistent. But you can find evidence for both versions in his works. So, because, you know, he didn't try to develop a full-fledged, you know, theory. You know, uh, he, he made some points, you know, um, depending on, on the situation. But you can find evidence for both versions in his works. But uh, so far as the logic of the discussion goes, I think this position seems to be more consistent. Right. And it's clear to the view, for example, Sheikh Fazlul Nouri defended, you know, a while ago. So, and... Uh, this one close, seems to be close to what, for example, Ayatollah Naini mentioned before, you know, years before in time of Mashrute. Uh, but uh, if you want my judgment, I believe Sheikh Fazlan Nouri's position was more consistent, right? I'm not in favor of his position, but I think his position was more consistent in comparison to Naini. You had a question? Yes. Secular Iran is actually coming from elements within the clergy. 
Some of them are not clergymen. For example, Surush, the, the, the group, uh, most people classified in this trend, they are modernists, and most of them are not, you know, clergymen. But uh, I have no rejection, you know, to what you say. There are trends among, you know, clergymen in Iran uh, in favor of modernism. And, you know, the new generation of clergymen in Iran, they are pro-democracy. And to some extent, they are pro-human uh, rights. And I think that's a huge challenge for Iranian government, for the future of Iranian government, because many young generation uh, among clergymen, they do not. Let me put it in this way. The debate on the doctrine of guardianship of the Islamic jur jurists right now is a dead topic. Nobody in Iran considered the topic as a hot topic, theoretically speaking. Why? Because more or less, uh, nowadays most people on both sides, they believe it is extremely difficult to defend the theory theoretically, right? Uh, even the young generation of clergymen, they believe it's extremely difficult to defend these theories. Uh, so theoretically speaking, it is a dead topic. You know, more or less, there is a consensus among Iranians, intellectuals, clergymen, that theoretically speaking, it is very difficult to defend, to sell this theory. But practically, it is, it, you, know, it, you know, it's the foundation of a government and the appeal to this government. I believe this is a huge challenge for Iran's government, for the next generation, to convince even the new generation of clergymen. And they, they are more inclined to uh, probably this version, or some, they are pro this version, and most uh, the vast majority, they are actually under influence of uh, Islamic intellectualism, the modernist movement in Iran. But I think you have a good point. Yeah. He is a clergyman, but he is greatly under influence of, you know, so far as his political view is concerned, it's under influence of this version, Suru Shabestari. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Actually, there's an ambiguity. In traditionally, in traditional Islamic jurisprudence, we have the concept of nizam. But by nizam, they mean the system of life, nizam i ma'ishat, you know. It's a very broad concept. It's close to what you call today's, for example, national interest. But the way Ayatollah Khomeini used the concept, uh, it seems to me it can be interpreted as the governmental interest, the interest of the political system. Uh, this is my understanding. And the political system can evolve to be whatever? It means the actual political system he founded in Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran. Yeah. The, 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 the interest of this government matters the most. Here's the, the, the claim. Okay, any, any question? Oh, yes, please. Can you tell us uh, for the naive uh, ones like myself, uh, who writes Sharia and how much room there is to reinterpret Sharia and or rewrite it? Um, uh, the, the, there are different sources for Sharia, but the main source believed to be uh, God's word, right? For example, Quran, that's the main source 
of Sharia. But of course, there are some other sources, for example, uh, uh, words we receive from the Prophet Muhammad or the Imams you know, in Shi'i tradition. These are the, the, the main sources, but none of them is, uh, none of them is in technical sense the, 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 what we call the knowledge of Islamic jurisprudence. Islamic jurisprudence is a branch of knowledge, right? And it is um, the, the product of a group work of you know, Muslim scholars. So what you can see as, you know, for example, uh, books of you know, Islamic jurisprudence, they are written by fuqaha, Islamic jurists, people, human beings. And they believe, all uh, Islamic jurists, they believe disagreement is, is, is reasonable. Uh, they say, look, it's like a judge, right? If you reach the truth, you have two rewards. One, you, you attempt to reach the truth. That's one reward. You receive, you know, you, uh, reward from God. And the, the second reward is you actually reach the truth. You discover the truth. But if you miss the truth, that's okay. You, you attempt to reach the truth, and that's rewarding. Right? So they believed, as a, as a jurist, we might make mistakes. It's, 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 it's possible, but if you sincerely attempt to reach the truth, that's okay. You would be rewarded, but if you reach the truth, there is a second reward for you as well. So the author of Sharia, they believe that the authentic author of Sharia is God, and you know, uh, in second level, uh, the prophet and imams, but the discipline, Islamic jurisprudence as a discipline was created by, you know, Islamic jurists. And it, it, can, be sub it can be the subject of different interpretations. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks.